morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing this morning our verse-by-verse study through this little book of Jude. As we've said over and over, this book is a warning to the church against apostates. Jude's aim is to protect the church against those who seek to destroy it. He introduces the apostates to us in verse 4. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Yeshua the Christ. Now these certain people are the apostates. They are the defectors from the faith. They're not outside the church. They have crept in. And Jude goes on to warn us about them and to describe them and to talk about their judgment. They are identified in verse 8, he says, these men. In verse 10, he says, these men. Verse 11, they. And again, they. Then in verse 12, these men. Verse 14, these. Verse 16, these. And then all of a sudden in verse 17, Jude says, but you. So he mentions these apostates again and again, again. But generally for verse 17 on, he is encouraging believers. But before we get to the encouraging part, we need to get through the rest of this description of them in verse 16. Now as we look at the characteristics of these apostates this morning, I just pray that we'll examine our own hearts and make sure that none of these characteristics that are used to describe apostates fit us. We shouldn't have the same characteristics that apostates have. He starts out for these are grumblers. This is the Greek word gongustos. It's found only here in the New Testament. It means to grumble, to express an indignant complaint. It's an automatopoeia. Remember that from English class? Huh? A word that sounds gongusmas. It's it's a grumbling. It's a complaining. They make this audible expression of a, an unwarranted dissatisfaction. They're just not happy with whatever is going on in life. So they're murmuring and they're muttering about it. He says, finding fault. This is memphimoiros, meaning quarrelsome, discontent. It's a word used by Greeks to describe the kind of person who is perpetually discontent, unsatisfied. Ones who blame their allotted fate in life on others, particularly on the Lord. Now the word memphimoros is used by Lucian to describe a standard Greek character. He says, you're satisfied by nothing that befalls you. You complain at everything. You don't want what you have got. You long for what you haven't got. In winter you wish it were summer. In summer you wish it were winter. You're like the sick folk, hard to please, and one who complains about his lot in life. Do you know those people? Hopefully you're not one of them, but you know those people. They're just never happy. They're always complaining. They're described as fate-blaming grumblers by Bauer, Art, and Gingrich. Those who discontentedly complain against God. They're dissatisfied with their fate. He says they're following after their own lust. Following here is from the Greek word poriumai, which means to traverse, to travel. It basically means to walk. They walk after their own lust. Now we find this exact same phrase in 2 Peter 3, 
Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. It's the identical word here, poor you am I, and the identical phrase that we have in Jude. The murmurers and complainers are walking after their own lust. We says these men are ordering the course of conduct in accordance with their own passionate cravings. Their conduct is governed not by the Word of God, but by their own lust, their own sinful desires. Their motto basically would be, if it feels good, do it. Now we see quite the opposite of this as we look at some people in Scripture. Luke 1.6, which speaks about Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, says they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Walking here is poor you, my... They're not walking after their own lust. They walk after the commandments, after the ordinance of the Lord. We see the same word used in Acts 9.31. And the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. The word going here is poor you, oh my. They were walking about in the fear of the Lord. Not in their own lust. You know... I really think you can tell a lot about a person by their walk. They might talk one way, but watch how they live. As believers, we're called to walk in holiness. We're called to walk in obedience to the Word of God. Well, these apostates want to move the bounds of morality. They want to live by their own lusts. And so we have those within the church today, the organized church who say, you know, it's okay if we ordain homosexuals into the pulpit. That's okay. And they want to canonize, they want to make holy and sanctify a homosexual relationship, and they want to call it a marriage. They want to call fornication love. Well, they're just in love. And people, we've got to stick with the Word of God. Our times are changing drastically. Our society is changing. We've got to stick with the Word of God. The Word doesn't move. It doesn't bend. It doesn't change. Yahweh is the same now and forever. His Word is the same. And just because society around us is pushing us that way, we can't move in that direction. And it's not just sexual lust, I think, that he's talking about here. It's lust for pride, lust for status, anything. And it all starts from within. He says, these men speak arrogantly. This is a compound noun in the Greek, huperonkas, from huper, which means over, beyond, more than, and ankas, meaning bulk, weight, boastful. Therefore, huperonkas means overweight, overswollen, boastful, puffed up. They speak swollen speech about themselves. In other words, they really puff themselves up. They think they are really something. Peter uses the same word. He says, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity enticed by fleshly desires. Once again, the same exact phrase we see in Jude. He goes on to say they are flattering people. Thaumadzo here is flattering. Most often translated as amazed or marveled. We find this word admiration, for example, in Matthew 8. He said to them, why are you afraid? You men of little faith. Then he got up. Now this is the middle of, they're in the middle of this huge storm on the boat. They're afraid for their lives. They think they're going to die. And Yeshua gets up, rebukes the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed. 
and said, what kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They're absolutely amazed here. Thumazo, can you picture this? You're on the boat, you're afraid for your life. Yeshua gets up and he speaks and it's dead calm. The ripples don't even make it to the shore. It just stops and it's perfectly calm. And they realize something's going on here. And they say, what kind of a person is this? They saw the power of God right before their very eyes and they're marveling. How did he do that? How could anyone have such power? Well, that's the positive use of this word. Yet in Jude, we find that there are these ungodly men who have men's person in admiration. That is, they marvel at men. This refers to desiring to please men rather than God. In other words, these apostates cater to individuals. That's the motivation in life. One man said, flattery has turned more heads than garlic. You get that one? That's true. It's intoxicating. Benjamin Disraeli, who was a British conservative politician and writer, served twice as prime minister, said this. Talk to a man about himself. And he'll listen to you for hours. <laughs> we know that's true, right? And flattery is telling a person exactly what they want to hear. They're individuals who adapt their teaching to what others want to hear. They don't tell you the truth about the Word of God. See, if you preach the Word of God, people are going to get upset. People are going to leave. If you want to get a crowd, tell them what they want to hear. Now, my buddy, Joel, is really good at this, Okay? I mean, people love him because he never says anything that would offend anybody. He smiles, he tells a joke, he says, this is my Bible, we're going to, you know, and he, he doesn't even mention that book the rest of the time. But it's always about God wants the best for you, God wants you happy, he wants you healthy, he wants you wealthy, he wants everything you want. Never mention sin, because he's a flatterer. And he's got the largest church in America, because he's a flatterer. People are going there to get their ears tickled, hear what they want to see, hear what they want to hear. Jude says they do this for the sake of gaining an advantage. That word advantage is the word profit used in Mark 8.36 for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? They're having men's person in admiration. That is, they're marveling at men because of advantage, because of some type of profiting. They're profiting from it. The idea is to show partiality towards others in order to gain a material advantage. Now, at this point in the letter, Jude has described these apostates in multiple levels of detail. I mean, he calls them, you know, trees without fruit. He goes on and on, clouds without water. He's just laying out what these guys are like. And the church is aware of their presence by now. They understand the nature of these apostates. They understand their methods, their motivations, and their fate. He's talked about their fate over and over and over. Now, if these are characteristics of apostates, should Christians be demonstrating these characteristics? The answer is no. Shake your head like this. No. Okay? If this is what apostates are like, and they're going to be judged, should we be like them? No, we shouldn't. But let's focus this morning on just a little bit of the aspect here, what he's talking about. Let's talk about complaining for a few minutes. Does the church today have any murmurers or complainers? These are grumblers, he said. 
Again, this word in our text is gongustes. It's used in the Septuagint to describe the murmuring of the Israelites as they gripe against Yahweh. They murmur against the true and living God. In the context of using the rebellious Israelites for an example, of what Christians should not do, Paul writes this, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now the word grumble here is gongudzo. And then in Philippians, Paul says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling here is gongusmas. So we see that Paul is telling the believers that they are not to grumble, they are not to complain like the apostates do. He says it over and over. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't do this. Now, we only want to get to verse 16 today, and we already did that. But I'm not going to let you go quite yet. For the rest of our time this morning, I want us to focus on the subject of complaining. I've entitled the message, The Grumblers, and that has kind of a double reference, you know. Jude 16 is dealing with the apostates in Jude's day, but I think this certainly applies to the American church today. And I specify the American church. I don't think too many other churches have the problems characteristic to us. So for the rest of the message, it's probably not going to apply to anybody here. But you probably know somebody that will apply to, so you can point them in the direction of the CD or whatever, okay? Yeah, you can leave. It's got nothing to do with you. You know, complaining seems to have become the great American pastime. We live in a very complaining society. People gripe about everything. And I mean everything. It's interesting that the most indulged society is the most discontent society. How does that work? The more we have, the more we seem to be discontent in what we have, and the more we complain about what we have. A sociologist, speaking on young people's discontent complaining attitude, says this. The discontentment of today's young people is a product of small families. He said that when you have families of two or less children, the average American family has 1.7 children. Not sure how that works out, but... (laughs) He says, when you have small families in a materialistic society, so that would be us, okay? He said, you breed selfish, self-indulgent children. For example, when you only have one or two children, the child gets up in the morning and the mother says, what would you like for lunch? And she fixes them whatever they want for lunch as they leave for school. She asks them, what would you like me to make you for supper? Okay, I'll fix that. And what time would you like to have supper? When shall I plan it? But if you're raised in a family of four or five or more children, you guys let me know if this is true, okay? (laughs) You get up in the morning, you're handed a bag lunch. And when you leave the house, the mother says, dinner's at 5.30, be here and you eat. When you go to the table in a small family, your mother has broken her back, she prepares this fancy meal, and the kids take one bite and say, I don't like this, fix me something else. In a large family, someone says, I don't like this, and the kid next to them says, good, and they take it. The difference is where you have a small family. Listen, this is important. When you have a small family, the system bends to the child. When you have a large family, the child bends to the system. So what you have, he said, is young people growing up in a society where the system bends to them and you have child-centered parenting. Man, do we see that everywhere we go. 
I see little kids in the grocery store telling their mother what exactly she's going to do. Give me that. Give me that. And they're bossing. I'm thinking, I've always had this idea. If you're bigger than somebody, they shouldn't be able to tell you what to do. <laughs> but we got two, three-year-olds bossing the mom. You know, my father-in-law used to call that the tail is wagging the dog. Something's wrong there. Children grow up controlling the family. And it's all centered on them. And so they become self-centered and indulgent. And what we have in this kind of environment is breeding moody, discontented people who can't be satisfied. They're always discontent. We have a group of complainers. We have a whole society with a critical mentality, constantly attacking everything. And this critical complaining attitude has found its way into the church. And the church is full of complainers. You know, I think few sins are as ugly to God as complaining. The church at large does a lot to feed this by continuing to, to propagate the self-esteem, self-fulfillment garbage that feeds discontentment. There seems to be very little thankfulness or gratitude today among God's people and very little contentment. How many believers do you know that really demonstrate a spirit of contentment? They're just happy. They're just content with where they are, with what God has done for them. Do you demonstrate that spirit? Are you thankful? When is the last time you just stopped from your busy life and just took some time and just sat there and thanked God for what He's given you? The fact that you got up in the morning, the fact that you're breathing, you're moving, you have food to eat, you go to, you know, you know how many people get up and their whole day is spent trying to provide for that day? Complaining is a part of our culture, but it's nothing new. Who was the first complainer? Adam. The woman you gave me. It's her fault, Lord. It's really your fault. You gave her to me. Cain complained about God's work in his life. Moses complained about God's work in Egypt. Aaron and Miriam complained against Moses. Elijah complained about Jezebel's threat. Jeremiah murmured against God. Jonah complained about, above all, <laughs> about, he complained about God's mercy. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. You know what he's angry about? God is saving the Ninevites. Doesn't that tick him off? He's an evangelist. He's a missionary to the Ninevites. They're getting saved and he's mad. Okay? I'd like to see more churches use the book of Jonah in evangelism explosion. Okay? This is how you evangelize. All right? You go out there and you tell them, I hate you people. I hope you all go to hell. And no, they all get saved, you know, because it's all about God. All right. He prayed to Yahweh and he said, please, Yahweh, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. I left. I didn't want to come here. Why? Because I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. God, I knew you're just a gracious God. That's why I didn't want to. He's complaining about that. You know, it's still popular today to complain against God. And we have to remember, people, that all complaints is against God and his providential will for our lives. To murmur, to grumble, to complain against God is a sin and we need to see it as such. In Romans 9.20, Paul says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? 
The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? To answer back to God is to question God. You're questioning God about whatever. Why'd you let this happen, Lord? How come I'm this? How come that? How come this happened? As I said earlier, the word gungustmas, gungustes, that Jude uses and these other writers use, are used in the Septuagint to describe describe the murmuring of the children of Israel in their desert journey. Now, do we first century American Christians know the dangers of complaining? I don't think we do because I don't think we'd do it that much if we really understood the sinfulness of it, the heinousness of it. Well, let's take a look at the Tanakh and see what God thinks about murmuring. Now, as we look at these references, I want to keep one thing in mind. Malachi 3.6, I am Yahweh, do not change, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, we live under the new covenant, which is radically different from the old, but God's moral principles haven't changed. He hasn't changed. He has changed his dealing with men, but he has not changed who he is and what he wants. The children of Israel had been in bondage under Egypt for over 400 years. Moses led them out of Egypt through the miraculous power of God. They'd just seen the hand of God in the plagues of Egypt, and yet they still didn't trust God. Now, if you can just even visualize what went on in there, all the plagues and all the disasters and everything. And Exodus 14, 12 says, Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? They're complaining. I wish you had left us in slavery. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They had just left Egypt carrying with them Egypt's wealth. Egypt was totally devastated. And they're carrying the wealth. They saw the mighty works of Yahweh. As soon as they have problems, they start complaining. Shouldn't it have been clear to them that Yahweh was leading them? I mean, there is a pillar of fire in front of them at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. Shouldn't it have been clear to them? But yet they complain. But here's the thing. Despite their griping, complaining attitude, God delivers them through the Red Sea. I think I'd have got them in the sea and I'd have just drowned them all. (laughs) But He delivers them through the sea. That's grace. They didn't deserve that. Then in Exodus 15, they're singing and they're praising Yahweh. That's what we do. We praise God when everything goes just how we want it. They just watch Pharaoh and all his army destroyed and they're like, yeah, let's praise God. A few minutes ago on the other side, they're griping. Now they're praising God. But then, in 1523, but when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Here's the same attitude. They're complaining again. Where's our water? They just watched the whole Egyptian army drown, and they're complaining because they don't have something to drink. And so God provides for their needs. Again, graciously, and he gives them water. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by Yahweh's hand in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. You know, they were slaves in Egypt. They make it sound like, man, it was a picnic there. We loved Egypt. They've forgotten how bad their slavery was. You know, it seems like whatever God does for us is just not enough. 
part the Red Sea, provide water. It's just not enough. So God responds to them. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and for the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instructions. So God graciously provides them manna every day. And the man has a picture of Christ incarnate. Yeshua said, I am the bread of life. He's the true bread that comes down from heaven. This is a physical picture of God's provision. And in the midst of their sin, He provides food for them. Well, let's go on. Exodus 17, they camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? They just had a test of no water. God took care of them. They got another test. He forgot about that. But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. They never stopped complaining. And notice that Moses says they were tempting Yahweh when they were complaining. It was Yahweh who was leading them with His presence and in the pillar of fire. He's ordering their circumstances and their complainings against Him. You know, this would be funny if it didn't see ourselves in the picture. Aren't we just like them? We see God... Caring for us, providing for us, and as soon as we get in jam, it's like we panic, we fall apart, we forget. In verses 5 and 6, Yahweh provides water for them. Moses smites the rock, and water comes out of the rock. And then he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested Yahweh, saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? Really? You asking that question? Everything you saw, you're asking that? How could they even do that? After all they've seen it, the plagues, the Red Sea parting, Pharaoh's armored, God providing water for them twice, God providing manna for them, they say, is, is Yahweh among us? Alright. Now, here's a change. From here on, we're going to go to the book of Numbers. But before we do, I want to bring to your attention a very significant change that takes place between what we've just been looking at and what happens when we get to the book of Numbers. Up to this point, Every time they murmured and complained, God just said, that's okay, took care of their need, provided for them. In Numbers, something different happens. From Numbers on, every time they gripe, He judges them. Severely. Why? What happened between Exodus and Numbers that now God's going to judge them every time they grumble? Mount Sinai. The giving of the law. Okay? He brought the people together. He entered into a covenant with them. They said, all the Lord says we will do. They wanted it. They joined into a covenant relationship with God at Mount Sinai. And then from there, we see a different story. He disciplined them for their complaining. Numbers 11, 1 and 2. Now, the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of Yahweh. And when Yahweh heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of Yahweh burned against them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to Yahweh, and the fire died out. So they complain in the midst of their adversity, and Yahweh's judgment falls upon them for their complaining, and yet they keep on complaining. Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat in Egypt. 
the cucumbers, the melons, the man, it was great in Egypt, the onions, the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. So God's providing for them in the wilderness, and they're mad about it. They're sick of it. All they got to do is go out and get it every day, pick it up, and they're sick of it. And I kind of understand that. I'd hate to eat the same thing for 40 years, you know. But, hey, they're under judgment. That's why they're wandering for 40 years, okay? So God's judgment falls again. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, nor a whole month, until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected Yahweh who is among you and have wept before Him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? While it was meat, while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against the people, and Yahweh struck the people with a very severe plague. Now, you would think that they'd have learned by this point, but they didn't learn at all. And next, the spies returned from searching out the promised land with an evil report. Then all the congregation lifted their voices and cried. And the people wept all night, and the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. You know, it seems like every time they have a trial, they wish they were dead. So, Yahweh grants their wish. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says Yahweh, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. The whole generation from 20 years and old up are going to die in the wilderness because of complaining. How serious do you think God takes the issue of complaining? Wipes out a whole generation. A couple of million people died because of their complaining. In number 16, we see the rebellion of Korah. He doesn't like Moses' leadership. Now, we recently saw this in Jude. And it says, The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah and their possessions so that all that belonged to them went down into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. The people are there watching. You know, Korah challenged Moses, You take too much on yourself. Moses said, Hey, show up tomorrow. We'll, do, we'll let God decide who's his man. And Moses said, If the thing, if normal, something normal happens and you die the normal death, then I'm not God's man. But if something re- really strange happens and the earth opens up and swallows, you, and that's exactly what happens. Earth opens up, Korah and his company fall in, it closes back up, and all the congregation is watching this. And then it says, fire also came forth from Yahweh and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. These guys were with Korah. Israel's response to this judgment is really fascinating. I mean, picture yourself there. You're there, you're watching it, you see the ground open up, you see fire come out of heaven. What's their response? You think they'd fall on their face before the Lord and say, Yahweh, we're sorry, we repent, and dust and ashes, stop, you know, we'll do whatever you want. No, they murmur. On the next day, this is really short-term memory loss, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of Yahweh's people. 
You see what they're doing? They're blaming Moses for this judgment. Listen, if they thought Moses did that, would they complain against him? I would say, Moses, sir, can I get your coffee? Can I help you out anyway? You know, what in the world? You thought Moses had that ability and you're going to grumble against him? Well, Yahweh responds again to their murmuring and sends a plague among them. And so Moses graciously says to Aaron, intercede for Israel. Get out there and let's pray. Stop this plague. And so he took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700 besides those who died with Korah. 14,700 died because of what? Complaining. Complaining is a serious sin. They weren't being judged for adultery here. It wasn't even idolatry here. They weren't turning worship a foreign god. They were murmuring. They were complaining about their circumstances. Yahweh was taking care of them. To complain about that is saying, you're not a very good God. You don't take care of your people. We don't like the way you run things. We don't like the way you do things. Now we go to Numbers 21. This is 40 years later. A new generation, but the same old attitude. The people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. (laughs) People, most of them would never even have seen Egypt or remembered Egypt, but they'd heard their parents complain about it. So they just followed in the example of their parents and they're grumbling and complaining about it. In verse 6, we see God's response. Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people, so many of the people of Israel died. Judgment after judgment. Every time they complain, they get judged. And yet they keep complaining. How many people died? How many people died in this whole, all these different plagues? And yet they're still going forward. You know, the history of Israel summed up pretty well in Psalm 106, 24 and 25. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in his word, but they grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of Yahweh. Now, again, we are told in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11, to learn from Israel's history. Now, Paul's writing to the Corinthians in the first century, and he's telling them to learn from Israel's history. But I don't think, I think this is just as well applies to us. We can look at the history of Israel. We can learn from what happened to them. We can understand God's attitude. If you read the whole chapter, you'll see it's just an overview of basically what we've read. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11. But let's look at uh, verses 10 and 11. Tell, Paul's telling them, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they're written for our instruction. Now, I know he's talking to the Corinthians, but I think they're written for our instruction also. We can learn from what happened to them, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. All we have just looked at in Israel's history is an example that we can learn from. This is how God feels about murmuring. This is how he feels about complaining. Because God controls our circumstances, so all our complaints are directed to him. I hope you're beginning to see that this is serious. It's a symptom. Complaining is a symptom of a deep-seated spiritual problem. It's a failure to trust God. It's a failure to be submissive to His providential will for your life. He hates it. He killed a lot, a lot of people because of it. 
It's a serious sin. I think we tend to take it very lightly as evidenced by the fact that we do it so often. But God hates complaining. Let me give you three reasons why He hates complaining. Number one, complaining denies or attacks the sovereignty of God. Exodus 16.8 Moses said, This will happen when Yahweh gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For Yahweh hears your grumblings, which you grumble against Him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against Yahweh. They had just been delivered out of Egypt was a demonstration of God's sovereignty. Pharaoh asked, Who is the God of Israel that I should obey Him? And the ten plagues were His answer. The sovereign God of the universe showed His power. The Israelites left Egypt wealthy. They go through the Red Sea on dry land. God kills all their enemies. Their success in entering the promised land is dependent on the sovereignty of God. So when they murmur against Moses and Aaron, they're calling into question God's ability to take care of them. Was God using Moses? Of course He was. He says, your grumblings are not against us, but against Yahweh. Remember the story of Joseph? Joseph's in Egypt. Why? He had some lousy brothers, didn't like him too much, were jealous, sold him into slavery, so he ends up in Egypt. When he has, confronts his brothers, three times in the text he tells them, you did not send me here, but God did. What? No, the brothers did. He didn't see it that way. Why? Because he understood the sovereignty of God. And so he didn't murmur, he didn't complain, he didn't attack his brothers because he saw God behind the whole thing. God sent me here. Here's the interesting thing. You sold me into slavery. God sent me here so I could take care of you. How about that one? Phew, that's amazing, isn't it? (laughs) All our complaining are against God. He's in control. If you believe He's sovereign... Whenever you complain, whatever it's about, he's behind it. So just think about that. All right. Every complaint against our circumstances, every grumble about the weather, about the way people treat us, about the trials of life, it's directed against the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11. You know, Paul in Acts 16 is in a Philippian jail. And we don't see Paul complaining. We see him rejoicing. They're preaching the gospel. They get beaten and put in a dungeon. And they're there singing. Because he trusted God's sovereignty. Complaining is the opposite of rejoicing. We're complaining because we don't like our circumstances and we shouldn't be there. He's grumbling. So complaining attacks, denies the sovereignty of God. Secondly, complaining disrupts Christian unity. Numbers 14.36 As for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land. See, the spies started the complaining, the whole congregation picked it up. This sin is so contagious that it spreads like wildfire. You get one disgruntled complainer, and it won't be long before it spreads to many. Whenever a person murmurs, he's finding fault. When you find fault, you might got to blame somebody because it's not your fault. And when this happens, some are going to agree with the complainer, some are not going to agree, and then you have a dis- you have a faction, you have disunity. And when people grumble, pay attention to the pronouns they use. Why did they do that? Who are they? 
Well, it's someone other than me. So it's us and them mentality, and that's disunity. And you think about this, people. When you start grumbling about something, anything, and people start on your side, you're causing disunity. So complaining denies or attacks the sovereignty of God. Complaining disrupts Christian unity. And thirdly, complaining discredits our Christian testimony. You know, we talk about God. We talk about how we love Him. We talk about how good He is. But so often we live like atheists. We murmur and complain all the time about every circumstance we're in. We fall apart in the midst of trials and the world says, what kind of God do they have? You know, Paul and Silas must have been a tremendous testimony in that Philippian jail. But what if it had went a little different? What if they'd have been murmuring and complaining about their situation? You know, what if Silas would have said to Paul, Paul, you, you think you act like a big shot. You got to show off and cast the demon out of that girl. You couldn't just leave it alone, could you? Now look at the trouble we're in. Couldn't you just let that demon-possessed girl alone? And then Paul fires back at Silas. Why didn't you tell him we're Roman citizens? Then we wouldn't have got beaten. But no, you had to keep your mouth shut. And so they're back there arguing and fighting with one another about the situation they're in. What do you think the Philippian jailer would have said then? How do I get away from these people? Not how do I, how can I be saved? How do I get away from these Christians? They seem like a grumbling, murmuring bunch. I don't want to be part of it. Believers, our testimony is important. It's very important. Because God uses our lives and He uses the trials in our lives to touch and affect others. And when everything's wonderful in your life and you're praising the Lord, people around you say, big deal. I'd praise God too if I had all that. But when your life is falling apart in the midst of trial and you're praising God and you're thanking God and you're calm and you're peaceful, the world takes notice. They're like, hey, what is going on there? That's something different. I like that. That's very different. Now, in closing, I want to share something with you. And when we look at the lives of Paul or Silas, we say, well, you know, I mean, he's an apostle. They had miraculous gifts of the Spirit. We're just ordinary people. We can't quite live up to that standard. Can we really live lives of gratitude without complaining, even in the midst of difficult circumstances? It's all a matter of perspective. And it's all a matter if you know who's controlling the circumstances. Some 200 years ago, Madame Guyon, who was one of the key advocates of quietism, she was imprisoned from 1695 to 1703 by the Roman Catholic Church, which considered quietism heretical. So they stuck her in prison. She spent nine years in a dungeon, lying far below the surface of the ground. She only had a candle to light the room at mealtimes. And she wrote these words. Before I read your words, think with me for a moment. What would you have to say to God? If you're in a, a dark dungeon, a prison with no light, for nine years, and you're there because of your faith in Him. What would be your attitude towards God? I often said Christians get mad at God today because they get a flat tire. You know, uh, they didn't get their check on time. So, you know, they get mad at God for everything. Here's what she wrote. A little bird I am, shut from the fields of air. Yet in my cage I sit and sing to Him who placed me there. Well pleased a prisoner to be. Because, my God, it pleases thee. To him who placed me there. She, she understands the sovereignty of God. He put me here. Not the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not griping against the church. I'm griping. I'm praising because I know who, who put me here. She goes on. Not have I else to do. I sing the whole day long. And he who most I love to please doth listen to my song. 
He caught and bound my wandering wing. Again, God's doing this. But still he bends to hear me sing. My cage confines me round. Abroad I cannot fly. But though my wing is closely bound, my heart's at liberty. My prison walls cannot control the flight, the freedom of my soul. Ah, it is good to soar these bolts and bars above to him whose purpose I adore, whose providence I love. And in the mighty will to find the joy, the freedom of the mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for living, breathing examples, Lord, of what it means to honor you by our lives. Father, I pray this morning that by your spirit, you would help us to realize the depth, the heinousness of our murmuring, our griping, our complaining about everything. God, make us a thankful people. Lord, help us to realize how much you have given us. And may the the words of our mouth, may the actions of our life be that of gratitude towards you who providentially control all things. May we learn, Lord, to honor you through a thankful heart. Amen.